Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Each episode, we pick a natural history topic, research that topic, take you out to a natural area, and share with you everything we learned. But this episode is gonna be a little bit different because we're here with Eric Danielson, who is the stewardship coordinator with the Western New York Land Conservancy. So, welcome Eric. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. So what we're gonna to do today is, Eric is gonna be taking us through a property that the Western New York Land Conservancy is working on acquiring, an area called the Allegheny Wildlands. I wanna make sure I get that right. <laughs> it's very complicated, <laughs> yeah tough to remember. <laughs> and like the previous episode we did with the Western New York Land Conservancy, we're going to be combining topics here because we're going to be talking about the Land Conservancy, the, the property that's here, but then we're also going to be talking about a specific species that we're definitely going to see, right Eric? We absolutely are going to see them. Okay, so we will see the American chestnut because a lot of times we go out to sites and uh, we don't find our target species. Those mm -hmm. are fun episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, <laughs> the last time did we find bryozoans or no? I don't think we did. I think we just no. talked about yeah, it. I don't think we did. Yeah, <laughs> but we will see the American chestnut today. Yeah, and it was very nice of the Land Conservancy to say that they'll um, cover any of our medical expenses if uh, we end up loaded with ticks. So thank you so much. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those nonprofits—they're loaded. Yeah, uh -huh. it's very generous. <laughs> so Eric, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, just to give the audience a sense of how you got to your position as stewardship coordinator? Hi, folks. At this point, Bill asked Eric to tell us about his background. Eric told us about growing up in western New York, working with the New York City Compost Project on Staten Island, linking up with a nonprofit called Wild Metro that aligned with his growing interest in reliably measuring tree height, and eventually moving back to western New York, where he was able to meet Priscilla Titus, a senior ecologist with the Western New York Land Conservancy, and her husband, Dr. Jonathan Titus, an associate professor in biology at SUNY Fredonia. These two mentored Eric and helped him out with some opportunities with the Western New York Land Conservancy, where he eventually was hired on as a full-time employee as the stewardship coordinator. Unfortunately, we had a lot of cars going by in the background and got off topic a few times, making this section a nightmare to edit. So I'm circumventing the editing process with this post-production narration. So we'll pick up again with two short clips that should have been edited out of the episode, and we'll immediately move on to talking about what it is the Western New York Land Conservancy does. Why don't you Eric, say that again? Okay. <laughs> They're these cars. You know, oversized pickup trucks with uh, muck tires on all year are part of the natural fauna <laughs> this, this area yeah what's that stick that foresters use what's it called ah uh, the biltmore stick the biltmore stick biltmore yes. stick Have you yes we, no. we uh we we don't use those <laughs> no, uh, that's old-fashioned they've got their applications they've got their applications okay but um you use the danielson stick right <laughs> I think we, maybe that should be edited out. That's, you know, going in territory where... Uh, anyways. Um, I wasn't going there. This episode's going to get real blue real fast. Oh, dear. No. Um, I think this is a good spot yeah. to just let the audience know mm -hmm. what the Western New York Land Conservancy is all about. So I think we already mentioned that we did an episode previously with the Land Conservancy, and we talked about land conservancies then, but I think it's uh, it's good to do it here too for any new listeners out there. Mm -hmm. So the Land Conservancy, anybody that's listening, they may have a similar organization in their area, but it may be called the Land Trust, right? Yeah. And these are private nonprofit groups that are dedicated to conserving land, not necessarily just wild lands, right? Mm -hmm. It could be culturally significant areas it could be agricultural areas mm -hmm. basically making sure land isn't turned into subdivisions or shopping centers mm -hmm. things like that right yeah correct me if i'm wrong with this though but isn't there something where you can get like a tax break if you say that so, you're yes. not going to develop your land or commit that's to what not I, that's yeah. what i was going to jump into next because you use the term easement yeah and in my experience 
most people don't know what a conservation easement is. That's a very good point. Right? And I think it's it's so important for people to know because I feel like an easement is such an effective and important tool for land conservation and especially to groups who may see tree huggers as they're coming to try to take our land. Mm -hmm. And I feel like conservation easements is a way like, look, this land can still be in private hands or it can still be productive in the sense of, of human production, but it can be conserved, it can be a benefit to the landowner, mm -hmm. where it's almost like everybody's can be happy. Uh, and I just, it frustrates me that easements are so ubiquitous. I feel like they're being used a lot, but it's almost like it's under the radar of the general public, mm -hmm. where most people, when you say conservation easement, they may have a vague notion of what it is, mm -hmm. but they, they almost think of like it's an easement, like uh, letting someone's driveway through your property or something like that. You know? <laughs> right, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And I, I do um, occasionally get that when I'm trying to explain what an easement is. It's like, oh, well, that's like my, my neighbor's driveway that goes through the edge of my property. Right. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, Steve, you're right that uh, part of this is that if you say you're going to not develop your land, you can get a tax break, but it's of course a little more complicated than that because you don't just call up the government and say hey, uncle sam can suck it i'm gonna i'm, not gonna... <laughs> I'm gonna just kind of leave that chunk of my land alone can you give me a break on my taxes right so, you know, that way. right they want they want some details and they want some accountability mm -hmm. and don't wouldn't you agree that the land has to have some kind of specific conservation value or historical value just because you have some land you're not using doesn't mean you're going to get a conservation easement on it. <laughs> right. To qualify for or to be worth uh, putting a conservation easement on a piece of land, it generally does need to have what the IRS defines as conservation values. Right. So if you look in the language of a conservation easement, there will be a section detailing what the conservation values of the land are. And the purpose of the easement is it is a legal document that in which all parties agree that those conservation values are not going to be infringed upon or degraded by any of the parties involved. Um, so, for example, for a farmland conservation easement, we have identified as conservation values things like open space and prime agricultural soils. You know, agricultural soils are very important to making sure that we can continue to feed ourselves into the future. Um, we are not losing population but we are losing land. Right. Um, we're losing land to development projects and commercial projects, sometimes industrial developments that can make a lot of money for people in the short term especially. But, you know, you can't exactly take a, a housing development on prime agricultural soils and turn that back into productive farmland. Um, so even though there may be a profit motive to turning that land into a housing development in the short term, if we're thinking in the long term, that's maybe not desirable. And that's where things like conservation easements come in to ensure that that profit motive is not the only thing on the table determining what happens to that land going into the future. And uh, conservation easement, the way it was explained to me long ago was... If you think of um, someone as, as a landowner, they have property rights, and you can think of that as a bundle of sticks. And each stick is something they can do with their property. Um, mm -hmm. Mineral rights, logging rights, um, water rights, the right to farm, whatever. Uh, and when you enter into a conservation easement, you're giving up or giving away some of those sticks. So you may be giving away the right to develop the land. Uh, and But you're still keeping all the other rights. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when the Western New York Land Conservancy enters into a conservation easement with a farmer, that land is not now open to the public unless the farmer decides that as part of his conservation easement. Like maybe he's going to allow hikers to hike through a portion of the land or something. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the, the setting up of the agreement, right? Right. So you have some easements on property that are closed to the public. They're still technically private land. Oh, yes. But that easement will be part of that property in perpetuity. So if they sell that land, whoever buys it is also buying the easement. Right. And can they opt out of it at some point? I don't think so, right? 
Uh, no, not really. I huh. mean, there are clauses under which, you know, an easement can be extinguished if certain things happen, um, but I've never had to deal with that, <laughs> so I don't know a whole lot about it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh -huh. I will caveat again that, you know, I'm only four weeks into this side of uh, right. the operations. I, I would say that in, in the research that I've done, because I, I used to teach about conservation easements during my when I taught environmental studies, mm -hmm. um, most of the literature refers to, like, all these agreements are in perpetuity. <laughs> it's meant to extend, you know, into the future, and it's not supposed to change. So I think those would be rare cases. Yeah. That, I think that's something more like if something catastrophic happens, right. that, uh, such that the conservation values that were originally identified right. in that easement are no longer <laughs> there there yeah the and that's and from what i've seen that's part of the deal if you want a tax break because sometimes that is part of a conservation easement not always mm -hmm. but you might get uh, temporary or continual tax breaks on that property but if those are going to happen the deal needs to be for you know the foreseeable future for perpetuity yeah got it um yeah there are many different purposes for conservation easements in terms of what we're trying to produce as an outcome you know sometimes they are for you know public preserves and recreation like when we preserve this property the conservation easement will include stipulations for providing public access for recreation but you know some other ones that aren't necessarily open to the public have other purposes like watershed protection you know, farmland protection, as we've been talking about, um, protecting rare and sensitive species and habitats that may not be compatible with a lot of public recreation on that property. Um, so there are different purposes and so different uh, easement language for different situations. So I have a, uh, a one-page primer on uh, conservation easements that I'll post in the episode notes. I think I did for the last one, but I, I just kind of collected all basic information. And folks, if you're at all interested in conservation easements, check it out, because it is such an incredible tool. Mm -hmm. And I think that tool is one reason that land trusts like the Western New York Land Conservancy are doing such vital local work all across North America. I feel like, just like conservation easements, groups like yours, they're almost operating under the radar for the general public. They hear terms like a land trust and land conservancy and kind of have a vague notion of what it is, but... You guys are doing so much great on-the-ground conservation work that's focused locally. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are thousands of land trusts across the country saving, protecting hundreds of thousands of acres. Mm -hmm. um, I should have looked up the numbers because I know I had it for our last episode. <laughs> but it's just, it's amazing the work that you guys are doing. So thank you, and we're happy to spread the word about your general work. But let's talk about this property here. So folks, we're at what we call the Allegheny Wildlands, right? Right. And we are close to Allegheny State Park. Longtime listeners will recognize that name, um, the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. We recorded an episode there a few years ago. Um, but just to give everyone an idea of where we are geographically, just imagine the New York-Pennsylvania border. Um, we are, what would you say, to the left of center. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that border? No, that's not helpful. Steve shaking. Right? No. <laughs> All right, you well, do it better. Let's talk, a, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about geography in terms of left and right. <laughs> if you were to stick Allegheny State Park on the Pennsylvania-New York border yeah. and picture where that is, we would in fact be left of Allegheny State Park. Right. I don't know if everybody knows. If you're knows treating that. north and south <laughs> as forwards and backwards. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is good yeah. geography for sure. Yeah. Right. But we're on the New York PA border. We're about an hour and a half from Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, south. Oh, even longer if you get stuck behind a horse and buggy. <laughs> And uh, also, people transporting their horses. <laughs> we got to do an episode about banning all horses. At this point. <laughs> you anti-horse, apparently. Um, no, it was fine, but it was it was kind of shocking will not to ingratiate you. Uh, with <laughs> The locals in this region. Right. We have a lot of horse trails here, and they contribute a lot to right. some of the local conservation. I actually like how there's a like deer crossing next three miles, but then it was like horse and buggy next four miles. <laughs> Just signs that you don't really see around like Hamburg, where I live, and, and, and other places well, around me. But stay alert while you're driving. <laughs> yeah, right. Do, do we need to say that Steve is totally kidding? I'm kidding. Horses. Let's not ban. We don't need to ban horses. Steve loves horses. I do have a professor that would say, "Yeah, let's ban horses." Really? I, yeah, I think I think Joe. 
Oh, Joe Allen? Yeah, Joe Allen might, yeah. Well, he thinks they destroy trails, but yeah. especially out west, I think. But. but he knows a lot about out west. Yeah. But here, let's focus <laughs> right. on, on this particular project. Um, so tell us about this property, what the, the Land Conservancy is trying to do here. But why don't we walk a little bit so we get a little, way, a little bit away from the road, and uh, you can kind of fill us in as we walk. Sounds like a good plan. Cool. I'm grab my banana. Oh, <laughs> son of a gun. <laughs> We're going to have to change that, I think. <laughs> you mean you're not going to include no. both the Daniel stick line and grabbing of the banana? Guys, we can censor it. We'll just beep it out. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to grab my... <laughs> it's not necessarily Better. improvement. Yeah. Okay, uh... Yeah, I don't know if you want to be eating while you walk. So. I mean, I, I think... I'm eating while I walk? I just have trouble talking. Honestly, a lot of people like that stuff. Okay, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> just an ASMR. We get as close as we can to the chewing. All right. We ate on I episode one. People like my girlfriend will not be able to listen to the episode. <laughs> right, there's right. chewing happening? Chewing. Right. Oh, yeah. I definitely, I, I'm more towards that side than the eating side, but yeah. All right, All right. It's gonna be a tough one. Damn it. Man, it's like you can't get far enough away. You know what we should do? I'm just gonna say this. At the end of the episode, we should stand by the road uh -huh. and you can record a bunch of cars going by Ugh. because you can always put those in almost as like background noise I guess. to drown out the transition. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just yeah. create another track. and We can do that. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes <laughs> when you have too much disturbance, you can put in more disturbance and it right. hides it. So makes sense. Yeah. All right. So we are now actually we moved a little bit. We are standing by a nice little babbling brook, uh, a little further into the property. And so a little bit about this property. In context, uh, the significance of this property is it's the first piece in a larger project called the Western New York Wild Way. So, we should have just set up some cones <laughs> about a mile down the road, <laughs> blocking it off. Having both the Western New York Wild Way project and the Allegheny Wildlands project has been a little bit confusing sometimes in terms of terminology. Uh, this property that we're at is about 200 acres. Um, it's where we were describing um, down near Allegheny State Park, and that is the Allegheny Wildlands project. So that's where we are now, and it's part of the Allegheny... Western New York. See, uh, it's even confusing when I'm trying to say it. Um, part of the Western New York Wild Way project. So, the Western New York Wild Way is a large-scale landscape conservation project that will link protected lands all through Western New York and hook it into a larger network of protected lands called the Eastern Wild Way that spans the entire yeah. Eastern United States. The purpose of this is to create corridors of connectivity where habitats are connected rather than being entirely fragmented and isolated in ways that prevent wildlife, even including plants over long time scales, from being able to move, particularly with relation to our changing climate and environment. So the Allegheny Wildlands is our first property in this larger wild way project. So this is, I think this is super exciting because I had actually talked to Jay Jean about this a while back. Jay Jean is the deputy executive director, yes. I have that right? Of the Western New York Land Conservancy. He's who we had on the podcast previously, but I talked to them about this idea. I mean, in ecology in, in North America and really globally over the, the past few decades, forest fragmentation and habitat fragmentation, habitat loss, you know, those two things are inextricably tied, has become one of the major drivers of species extinction. And we have all these wonderful parks, national parks, state parks, but research just keeps showing us that it's not enough. These islands of habitat, we need to have connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, if we are going to even try to hold back species extinction, let alone turn it around. And I just think it's so exciting that you guys are focusing on this on a local level. And I'd encourage listeners, uh, we're going to, you know, post links to the Land Conservancy in this particular project, but I'll also post um, other links to the Wildlands Project, which is a continent-wide effort 
to develop wild ways. Go ahead. Well, that would be the Wild Way Project. This is the Wild Lands Project. Correct. Thank you <laughs> for correcting me. <laughs> like I said, we've had some, uh, some little mix-ups due to the similarity of the two terms. Right. Um, but yeah. But yeah, it's all about connectivity. If you've got links to the Eastern Wild Way Project yeah. listeners, no matter where they are, um, if they are in the Eastern U.S., um, and there are probably similar projects being, uh, you know, developed elsewhere. There are. There's one called the A to A project, trying okay. to connect Algonquin to the Adirondacks. Okay. So Algonquin <laughs> so in Ontario. Scale. Yeah, trying to create wildlands connecting those two important uh, mm -hmm. areas. Cool. So the significance of this particular property, the Allegheny Wildlands, and why it fits well into our wildway concept um, is that it is directly connected and contiguous to well over a thousand acres of existing protected land. Uh, it's sort of a mosaic of the South Valley State Forest, some county forest land, Cattaraugus County. Um, These are areas in southern western New York. Right. Okay. Um, it's also contiguous to the Allegheny Reservoir Wildlife Management Area and then sort of geographically contiguous if you count water directly across the reservoir is Allegheny State Park. So it's connected to a pretty big chunk of existing protected habitat. At the same time, uh, the shape of the property, you could sort of picture a rectangular strip going down a hillside. Um, and so there's you know more forest land above it, up on top of the hill, and there's forest land and wetland habitat down below it um, at the valley bottom. And the importance of this property is that it connects those two because a lot of the development that's happening right in this area happens in these middle slopes. So when there's development of say housing, estates, uh, sometimes industrial projects like wind turbines, things like that, those are mainly in the middle slopes and because of that they kind of cut off that connection um, for wildlife movement between the, the hilltop areas, which are mostly working forests, uh, mostly private land, um, and those protected uh, wetland and forest habitats that are in the valley bottoms. So protecting a habitat like this ensures that some of those places uh, maintain connectivity and allow wildlife to continue moving back and forth between those habitats seasonally. And this is, as you were saying, this is one piece, mm -hmm. the Allegheny Wildlands, is just one piece in a patchwork and correct me if I'm wrong, you're trying to basically connect, if we take Western New York, the southern border of Western New York, to uh, the Niagara Peninsula going into Canada, right? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so to give wildlife, any kind of wildlife, traveling from Pennsylvania up into Canada or over Lake Ontario, places to move. At so, the broader scale, yes. Yeah, the broad scale. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that's, that's a, a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and this property here, you, the Western New York Land Conservancy, you're seeking to buy this outright, not just have a conservation easement. It's not going to still be private land, right? Right. This is one that we're buying to own. Okay. Much like the College Lodge that we spoke about uh, previously and uh, about 20 of our other preserves. And once we are able to buy it, it will become a nature preserve with public access, trails. It will be open to the public. Um, and it, but it will have a conservation easement on it. Correct. So if, God forbid, something happens to the Western New York Land Conservancy, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah. still protected yeah. in, in perpetuity, right. as you said. Right. Good and word. In, in cases where we are the property owner, um, usually the easement is held uh, fully or in part by some government agency, um, typically one of the agencies that's helped us fund the project through a grant. Okay. Um, so I think probably Department in of this Defense. case... Uh, you know, there's always the Department of Defense, those good old defense folks. Um, Not but, in this uh, case. Off, more often the uh, Parks and Recreation or U.S. Right. Fish and Wildlife um, agencies like that. Yeah. So beyond the, the connectivity that this property provides, mm -hmm. what are some of the, like, the key aspects of this property in terms of wildlife mm -hmm. that are worth talking about? So this is really where it gets into the stuff that I really like because, uh, you know, working with easements and stewardship is cool, but I am absolutely a plant and wildlife nerd, um, especially the plants. Um, so apologies if I do 
go on a little bit about uh, you're with things two plant move. nerds here <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so one of the things that's really cool about this little chunk of southwestern new york state is that it was never covered by glaciers during the last ice age uh, the formal name for this unglaciated area is called the Salamanca Re-Entrant. Um, and when I was growing up, um, you know, I basically learned that Allegheny State Park was the only part of New York State that had never been covered by glaciers during the last ice age. And oftentimes I'll see that referenced as basically being the full extent of it. It's just Allegheny State Park. But in getting ready for this project, I looked into some mapping and... Um, found that the size of the Salamanca re-entrant is actually quite a bit bigger. Um, you know, it extends a bit further west, a bit further north, and quite a bit further east, such that Allegheny State Park only represents about 40% of the total wow. unglaciated area. <laughs> so it's still not like a huge area, but it's, it's meaningful and significant. So the fact that the glaciers never covered it during the last ice age means that it has soils that developed in place over very long-term erosion of the bedrock that is native to the site. That's 6,000 years, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. Six... <laughs> oh, I get you, I get you. Yes, 6,000 years after the yeah, waters receded. And, uh, That's right, yes, yes. after the flood. Uh, right. <laughs> Trying to confuse the listeners. <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry, so 6,000 plus another 6,000 plus another 6,000, and we get yeah. to the height of the last ice age. Um, <laughs> about 18,000 years ago and uh, you know the ice would have been really close you know if we were standing right here or maybe more like standing on the hilltop behind us mm -hmm. we'd probably have been able to look north and see like a two mile tall wall of wow. ice yeah. you know the glacier uh, advancing edge I don't know if it was two miles thick at the advancing edge. Uh -huh. um, but it was thick. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It, it was two miles thick also. Picture yeah. the wall in Game of Thrones. There you go. <laughs> Honestly, our listeners might be more familiar with glaciers than Game of Thrones. <laughs> I, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell. But. <laughs> well, if you picture the glacier as a bulldozer. Um, <laughs> That's a good know, way to do it. Yeah. The glacier, uh, you know, extended south over the period of glaciation. Um, and as it did so... You know, it was basically due to the accumulation of more ice and snow mass up sort of in the main dome that was over kind of northern North America. Um, and that created pressure that pushed the ice south, as I understand it. That's got to be good for plant communities. No. Well, just like bulldozers, uh, which we also know are great for plant communities. I mean, well, sometimes, you know, they're doing that, you know, southern grassland restoration, and it turns out all you got to do is, like, scrape the top layer of soil that's got all that invasive stuff out, and seed bank comes back up. Whoa. But uh, the, the glaciers are a much bigger bulldozer that has not the sensitivity to just scrape a couple centimeters of soil away. Uh, they gouge huge amounts of soil and bedrock underneath out of the land as they advance. Um, so in the glaciated portion of New York State, which is the rest of New York State, uh, the vast majority of it, all of the soils are soils that were basically ground up uh, from bedrock somewhere further north, moved south by the glacier, and then dropped there as the glaciers eventually retreated and melted away. Um, some remixing um you know you've got these interesting uh you know meltwater features um which we don't really have to get into because today we're talking about the unglaciated portion of right. new york state but just know that glacial geology is really cool and has a big influence on what plant communities exist in what places um, so that's a lot of fun but the soils here are formed entirely by the long-term erosion um, by both precipitation and chemical weathering in the soil, the soil biology, of the bedrock that is on the site. And because of that, if you look at a topographic, not necessarily a topographic map, but like a 3D topographic view, like you'd get in the terrain mode in Google Earth or something, um, you can see that the landscape here uh, has much sharper uh, slopes and ridges. Um, <laughs> it looks like it's just really, like you could use it as a some sort of an abrasive if you needed to like get rid of a callus Scholars. on your foot. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you got it. Uh, yes, it's very very wrinkly um, in a very sharp way. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. We're in the 
really the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, in a sense, go all the way up to the edge of the Allegheny Plateau. Right. Um, but this portion of the Allegheny Plateau is a lot more physically rugged because it was not smooshed down and smoothed out by the glaciers. Right. It wasn't sanded. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, it didn't get bulldozed. Yeah. <laughs> sanded, bulldozed. We're making all kinds of I know. here. Geologists <laughs> out there are shuddering. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the cool thing about that is that the, the bedrock here, um, you know, it's mainly kind of neutral to acidic siltstones, um, shales, sandstones. Um, there's a big sandstone layer that creates these kind of cool rock city sites um, that you might have heard of. Um, <laughs> Such as Rock City. <laughs> right, like Rock City, Jake's Rocks, Panama Rocks. Little Rock City. Yeah. Right. <laughs> these are all places in New York. Yes, yes. But, you know, those are places, there's a lot of places like those further south, too, where you basically right. you've got these what look like giant boulders, like whole cities of giant boulders that have these narrow passageways in between them and usually flat tops. And uh, those are formed by, uh, you know, repeated freezing and thawing of water that gets into cracks and kind of breaks things up. As opposed to up in the glaciated portion where I grew up, if you find a giant boulder, that's something that a glacier dropped there. So different processes. Oftentimes granite, yeah. No, I was going to say an erratic, right? Oh, an erratic. Yeah, Yeah, I thought you said granite. Sometimes they're granite. Sure. Um, That's the only time you'll see granite in that part of western New York because otherwise the geology is entirely sedimentary. But like I was saying, the the geology here, the bedrock that all this soil is weathered from is really kind of more on the neutral to acidic side and pH is something that's really important to what plants grow in a given place. But a lot of the plants that I see here are plants that would be considered sort of rich site plants, um, which means that they're associated with high levels of calcium and slightly alkaline or more neutral soils. Uh, So that's sort of an odd conundrum, um, but has had me sort of wondering about whether the very, very long-term development of uh, the soil biology here uh, means that there's enhanced nutrient availability in ways that, uh, you know, takes longer to develop in more recent and younger soils. But I don't know if there's anything to that. It's just kind of one of the things that makes me wonder. Okay. Alternatively, um, it could be that, for example, during the previous ice age, um, the Illinoisan glacier, um, the last one, the most recent one, was the Wisconsin glacier, or Wisconsinian. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> geologists can <Yeah>. grumble <laughs> at me. Um, and then prior to that, we had another ice age um, or another glaciation. That was the Illinoisan glacier. And to my understanding, portions of that extended a little further south into this unglaciated zone. (laughs) uh, And so might have, you know, deposited some other sediments here that may be interacting with the soils here. So interesting questions. I don't have good answers, but (laughs) I enjoy seeing the results. Right. I guess that is important just to bring up briefly is that there's, right, there's glacial and interglacial periods. So Mm -hmm. when you say unglaciated, you mean unglaciated since the last glacial period right it's not necessarily every glacial period didn't cover it but we're in an interglacial period now right yeah Yeah. that's correct yeah yeah this would be a lot different if we weren't (laughs) (laughs) but i guess the the maybe comparison that i'm drawing there when i say that there's uh plants here that are associated with more kind of rich site conditions is as compared to across the reservoir in allegheny state park which is sort of the the bulk of the unglaciated zone. Um, Some of the plants that I see here, even though it's a similar unglaciated habitat, are different than the plants I see over there. Um, Some of which are really interesting, uncommon, even rare species um, that would be really cool to find in Allegheny State Park, but I've never heard of them being recorded there. It It just sort of dawned on me that because this is one of the areas that wasn't covered in glaciers during the last glacial period, that this area and then probably other areas around it were kind of like the ancestral lands of a lot of the plants that eventually recolonized the more northern areas, correct? I mean, refugium. It, it, this would be a refugium, correct? So <laughs> I love that word. Um, possibly. Because I know they could have come from other areas as well, how they spread, yeah. but this could be one of the sources for 
the genetic diversity that we see in the northern areas now that, that used to be covered. Definitely a contributor. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, of course, that we're in just one little spot, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, it's, um, we're going to definitely get back into glacial refugia and, you know, how plants migrated north after the Ice Age as we talk more about our target species. Um, but, yeah, there would have been ecology from here that spread further north into the areas as the ice retreated probably kind of first. But there's good reason to believe that at the time of maximum glaciation, these areas just south of um, the glacier edge would have been dramatically different in terms of their floristic composition. That's a good the point. Climate, the climate was so Oh different. yeah, that's right. a good point. So they must have probably even further south, you would imagine. Further south, but you know, maybe even those would have a head start the closer they were to this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of so the Steve was wrong. No, I, yeah, <laughs> not 100%. It's, 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 know, a good, it's no, it's a good point though that uh, it's that not like wrong. it's not like the glacier stops and suddenly it's the same right communities. Uh, you know, it's obviously yeah. going to be a very different type of environment there and climate and everything. Yeah, but that is one of the interesting things towards the end of the glacial period um, that I was running into as I was doing a little research for this episode is that you know the the warming up of the planet in general and the retreating of the ice were not perfectly synchronous you know that's a huge amount of ice just because it gets warmer doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean it's going to melt all right away yeah. there's some lag time mm -hmm. so there were periods towards the end of the glaciation in which there was much warmer more temperate vegetation up very close to the ice and even some periods where especially in localized areas the ice re-advanced and would have been right up against more temperate biomes, um, especially where there were like lobes that kind of pushed south in a skinny sort of way. Um, so definitely complicated, and there probably would have been times when the vegetation here was very like tundra-like maybe, um, but also might have been periods in which there was like a temperate mixed forest pretty close to some glaciation. Yeah. All right, so speaking of plants, why don't we, since I'm, I'm thinking about our time here, why don't we take a, a moment now and focus on our target species, the American chestnut? Because you said off mic that we were close to one? Yeah. Okay. But before we do that, I just want to talk for a moment about slightly more recent history. Okay. Glaciers are deep time, obviously. <laughs> um, but more recently, the uh, you know when European settlers came into this area, uh, the folks who bought this piece of property were a family called the Slugas. And the Slugas have owned this piece of property ever since then. So nearly 200 years, maybe a little more wow. than 200 years. Wow. I'm not sure. Um, but it's been in one family for this entire time. And the road that we're on, it's sort of a very overgrown lane through the forest, is a logging road that's probably been used time and time again because while the topography is very rugged and it wasn't any good for farming on the majority of the property, they did regularly do some timber harvesting. <laughs> so this forest has always remained a forest, but it's been regularly harvested for timber. Um, there is a small portion of the property near the road uh, that was cleared and used as uh, farmland for some period, maybe just as pasture. I'm not sure how good the soils would have been for crops. And there's a little old homestead, that kind of thing, that are sort of just fading into the woods. Um, so it is the Slugas that we are working with um, to purchase the property. Originally they had it on the market, but once we were interested in it, um, they decided that they wanted to give us an opportunity to conserve the property. And that <laughs> they would like to see it in conservation. So that is why they've given us an opportunity to raise the money that we need to purchase the property and, you know, set up the funding to permanently pay taxes on and maintain the property uh, in perpetuity by the end of this year. So we are working on raising roughly $870,000 by the end of this year. And most recently we announced that we have received a challenge gift of $310,000 from three separate donors. Wow. And since it's a challenge gift, that means we need to match the funds uh, with donations and other sources. So anyone who wants to contribute or knows someone who might be able to contribute to help make sure this property does get conserved successfully, um, definitely have a look at our website. We have all the information there on how to make donations, um, all of our contact info, and we'd really appreciate it. And that's yeah. 
WNYLC.org, right? Right. Okay. WNYLC.org. And, and we'll make sure to put links in our episode notes as well. We will. But yeah. any, for anyone too lazy to uh, <laughs> go to our episode notes, <laughs> they could just type in WNYLC.org. And that's Western New York Land Conservancy. That's an initialism right there. Very easy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so folks, uh, we do encourage everyone, and we'll say it again at the end of the episode, but um, we can't say enough how much we think this project is important to the long-term ecological health of Western New York. Um, Just this piece and then the larger Wild Way Way project in general. Great work. Thanks. So, yeah, let's go see a chestnut. All right. Cool. I hope it's healthy. <laughs> now, why would that be, Steve? Are they susceptible to the coronavirus? <laughs> you know what? I never even thought about it, but I'm thinking they might be at this point. Um, so, right here we have the first one that you can find on the property. And looking up, we're seeing you know these spreading branches over the trail that are maybe 20 feet above our heads that have these big leaves. They're very long, and they're very sharply toothed on the sides. Yeah, it looks like an aggressive American beach. I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> looks like a badass beach leaf. Which, you know, they're, they're family members, right? That's right, they In are. the Fagaceae, right, so. Yeah. Yep, along yeah. with the oaks, they're yeah. all closely related. They're frenemies, the oaks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, the, the oaks, unfortunately, harbor their enemy. Um, oh, they do. Yeah. It turns out that uh, scarlet oak, in particular, is kind of the uh, the ideal asymptomatic host for the the blight fungus. Wow. Um, but I believe the other red oaks, in particular, do kind of host it as well. Okay. And that's why even after you have all of the chestnuts in an area die, um, that fungal organism can hang around, and uh, you know it doesn't disappear. So the oaks are like a reservoir for the... Right, that's definitely the word I was looking for. Oh, wow. <laughs> do, do, do we have scarlet oak here? I when I, Like when I was in Illinois, we would see it a lot. But here, I don't really see scarlet oak uh, very often. Or I don't even remember it if I ever really saw it. But Around here, you probably haven't. Yeah. There really isn't. Um, there are some very small, limited populations kind of in the Niagara area. And then you kind of get more of it over in the Finger Lakes in central New York. It likes very sandy, well-drained soils, and the uh, the dominant soils of this region don't really do a lot of that. <laughs> um, but you know, we have northern red oak here. We have black oak. Uh, black oak is also regionally very uncommon. Uh, there's a lot less of it than I think people necessarily think there is, because it's easy to pick up a field a field guide of trees and see that uh, you know black oak has rougher bark than northern red oak. And usually they'll show a picture of a shade leaf of black oak that's sort of very kite shaped. <laughs> and so then you go out into the woods and you're seeing northern red oaks. And then you're also seeing some trees that look like northern red oaks, but their bark is very rough. And you can see that the leaves up above your head that are down low in the canopy, they're very kite shaped. And so then you think it's a black oak, but it's just an older northern red oak. <laughs> um, you know, oaks have very extremely variable leaf shape. Right and that can be very confusing. Right. Um, but this is one of the sites where there's really distinct and clear black oak, which has a very different bark texture when you see it that way. Just for people, so it's funny, I, I really don't think about the oaks sometimes in terms of like the common names, mm-hmm. but would you give the, the scientific names too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, uh, the tree that we are looking at now, American chestnut is Castanea dentata. Uh, dentata, uh, referring to those sharp teeth along the leaves. Red oak is Quercus rubra, uh, rubra referring to red, um, which probably is an allusion to the red coloration on the petioles, the leaf stems. Um, Quercus uh, coccinea would be scarlet oak, and I'm not sure what coccinea means, but it's often in the names of things that are bright red. So I'm assuming that has to do with another kind of redness. And then Quercus velutina, that's black oak. And the velutina, sort of like velvet, I don't know if that's actually the root, but um, <laughs> refers to hairiness. Hmm. It has, has hairs in places the other oaks don't. It's... <laughs> All right, cut. Anyway. <laughs> so in, yeah. in my research, I just found that castanea just meant 
chestnut. Yeah. Yeah, like there was a don't, don't well, okay, but when you when you get words like that, sometimes it's like it's like Greek for the tree or the chestnut, you know. Right. Um yeah, I don't know. Th those are always confusing to me. Well, we can just say that that's as far as we traced the other Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, cuz that those words tend to come from something else usually even even True. more, but So, let's give people a sense though of the American chestnut and a little bit of its history. Sure. So, um, I did some research on that. Um, Steve, why don't you start with the research you did? Uh, <laughs> silence. <laughs> for <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got nothing. So All right. That's okay. Yeah. You're holding the mic. It's okay. Yeah. He's doing the heavy lifting. He's going to do the editing. Literally the heavy. Oh, well, I was going to say the heavy lifting. And you're holding but, the mic. Yeah. All right. So, it was interesting because when, when we first got here and we were talking, you said that you were going to be dispelling some of the... Um, common held myths about the American chestnut. So I'm interested to see what those are because we love when that happens. Right? Uh -huh. So the seed pods aren't really dead baby porcupines. You know, that's they, not what I encountered in my research, <laughs> to be honest with you. They're actually just the, uh, the American chestnuts actually doing just fine, right? Um, <laughs> I wish. All right, so the, the oh. chestnut used to line the streets <laughs> in western New York. No, those were elms. Damn it! <laughs> didn't we? We did have a lot of chestnuts, though, didn't we? Not along the streets. No, no not actually, along the streets. No. Damn it! The only thing that I didn't Steve, research, I got wrong anyway. Don't try. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what I found was that its range stretched from Maine to Georgia and West Indiana, and in the late 1800s, before the the blight really hit, and we're going to get into the blight and what it's all about. But it's estimated that there were about four billion trees in its native range. Um, now, what does that mean, right? Uh, but this is one point that I'm wondering if you're going to debunk. I often heard, you know, over the past decades, when people would talk about the chestnut, they would say that in some of the forests in the Appalachian Mountains, kind of its, its real home range, that one in four trees in the forest could have been American chestnut. Um, but then in the research I did for this episode, I even found some records that it said in some places it went up to 50% of the forest was made up of American chestnut. Um, just to give a sense of what a large component of the Appalachian forest it was. Mm -hmm. Now, in your experience, is that accurate? Well, the version you just gave is definitely the most sober version of that uh, sentiment that I've encountered. Okay. Because a lot of times what I actually read is just accounts that say that, you know, American chestnut was outright at least one fourth of the composition of all the eastern U.S. forests, oh. uh, which then sometimes goes even a little bit more hyperbolic into, you know... <laughs> Our whole forest is... In 1600, a squirrel could have run across <laughs> the tops of chestnut trees from the east coast to the Atlantic. Right. Now, I want to point out... Wait, um, you, you mean the Mississippi to the Atlantic? You said east coast to the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, I just mean the Mississippi. <laughs> you know, back then the Mississippi was the. That's Atlantic. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that these stories That's, are getting mixed. Yeah, That's right. Great. Well, and you know, you hear the same thing said about white pine. Right. In different contexts, like maybe a hundred years earlier, um, and then you also just get that story in the first place disassociated from a particular species of the. The squirrel running from the coast to the river which is probably not even true in most of the eastern u.s because there were grasslands right um as we're learning more and more about shout out to our grassland birds episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but you know this far north um there were grasslands were a much smaller part of the habitat matrix so you know maybe a squirrel could have made it from the atlantic to the allegheny without having to meander too far but they would not have done it strictly on the tops of chestnuts or white pines right. by any means. Um, you were correct in identifying that it really is the the Appalachians yeah. um, that is sort of the, the key portion of the range for the American chestnut. When you go to the really old accounts of you know what trees were present in eastern North America, um, you know they tend to emphasize the oaks. They tend to emphasize beech a lot of the time. And when they mention chestnut, they usually talk about chestnut being on slopes and mountains. And when we look at the uh, the preferred growing conditions for American chestnut, 
that really backs that up. It likes acidic, moist, but well-drained soils that are often sandy or gravelly. So that is to say that it has a particular niche, and while it's very competitive and very adaptable, if you have a fairly stable forest system over a long period of time, there will probably be certain areas where you do find a lot of it, and other areas where you don't find as much of it. It was certainly described as being present in other forest types as a minor component, um, but especially when you get into habitats that might have a more calcareous soil, as in full of calcium, um, you'd probably have a lot less chestnut. But those areas of the Appalachians you talked about, it would be a lot more prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got those slopes and, you know, you do have pretty right reliable reports from pretty reliable reporters uh, back then of, you know, the spectacle of the chestnut flowers. Right. When just a whole slope would be covered in these chestnut flowers. Yeah, it was referenced to one thing I read that it was like um, the hillside was covered in, it looked like it was covered in snow because yeah. there, there were so many flowers. Oh. So I just want people to think about, though, that that large component, you know, some areas where it could be 25 to 50% of mm -hmm. the forest trees, what that did to the ecology of those places, like the amount of mass that those trees would produce and how that impacted the wildlife there. Um, there were some things that I came across where some people are, were saying that it's possible the loss of the American chestnut exacerbated the decline of the passenger pigeon. Because, that is something I've Yeah, because passenger well, pigeons yeah. fed so heavily on American chestnuts. Mm -hmm. uh, so I came across a paragraph that I want to share, that I want to read for the audience. Um, and this is from the Finger Lakes Land Trust, so another land conservancy. I don't know if um, these are your allies or your enemies, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're friends. Okay. So when you meet, you don't snap your fingers and um, engage in knife fights like West Side Story? Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so this is what, um, from one of their newsletters I came across. Talking about the American chestnut, the so-called redwood of the east was a keystone species and its loss in the second half of the 19th century changed the forest irreparably. It grew to a giant size, 100 feet high, four to five feet in diameter. I hate this road noise. <laughs> That's such an odd thing for them to write. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> no, it's ruining the uh, It the timed moment. out perfectly with that car going by. It was amazing. <laughs> and it's spreading branches through the forest floor below into deep shade. Untold caterpillars ate the leaves, the sturdy branches supported massive flocks of passenger pigeons, and the large, abundant, starchy nuts fed bear, white-tailed deer, and wild turkey. Even in death, the tree shaped its environment. The fast-decaying leaves leached their nutrients into soil and streams, while the rot-resistant branches fell into the water and created hiding places for fish. It was a source of food and medicine for both Native Americans and European settlers, and the latter fed its nuts and sprouts to their livestock. The bark was used for tanning leather, the straight, strong wood made everything from musical instruments to log cabins to railroad ties and caskets. And in my research, I kept coming across people referring to this as a cradle-to-grave tree because mm. they said it helped the settlers with creating things, from everything from cradles to coffins and everything in between. You read accounts of people going chestnutting um, in the late 1800s where people could gather buckets of chestnuts and sell them. Um, we already talked about they're being covered in snow uh, during the flowering season. It looked like the mountains were covered in snow. And one thing that I wanted to focus on was the rot resistance of the wood. Now, we're on the western side of Allegheny State Park, but on the eastern side near Olean, uh, have you been to Pfeiffer Nature Center? You know, that is one of those places where for some reason... You just I haven't have made it to. So Pfeiffer Nature Center, they have a cabin there that mm -hmm. belonged to the family that owned the property originally. But that cabin is made out of chestnut boards um, that I believe were harvested from trees that had actually fallen. That's my understanding. But yeah. the, it's so resistant to rot that they were able to take those fallen trees, create lumber out of them, and, and turn it into a cabin. It's actually uh, still quite sought after by woodworkers. Sure. They'll find, uh, you know, the decaying snags, which term, if listeners aren't familiar, a snag is just a dead tree that's still standing as it decays. And you find these chestnut snags that, you know, their bark is gone and the sapwood, the outer layer of wood, is gone, but the heartwood is still there. Um, and oftentimes you can get nice solid sections of wood, and woodworkers, particularly wood turners, seek those out. Right. They also often get them from, like, very old fences, because those fence posts 
especially the ones that are up off the ground, uh, you know, they're 100, 150 years old fence posts, but they're still sound enough to use for woodwork. Yeah, it's crazy. A hundred years later, and it's still yeah. wow. workable. It's nuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, that rot resistance and all those other incredible uses for the wood, um, I think is important to point out as the source of that term, the redwood of the east. So as far as anyone can tell, that seems to have been coined in early American chestnut foundation literature, that term, the redwood of the east. But I think it's often been misinterpreted when people hear it as referring more to their great size. Gotcha. In the forest. Yeah, they didn't get as big as redwoods. Right. They didn't get as big as redwoods, but there has been a bit of an issue with uh, historic photos of American chestnuts included in museums, websites, things like that, are often, in fact, images of redwoods oh. being logged on the West Coast. Wow. Um, and this is, this is usually not actually that hard to discern if you understand what you're looking at, because, you know, redwoods have this very thick, dark bark, yeah. then this very thin layer of white sapwood, and then this really dark heartwood. Um, so usually it will be a picture where they've, like, cut a wedge into the tree because they're in the process of logging it. And you know there will be like two guys on either side and a couple guys lying down in the wedge cut mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's pretty easy to discern once you understand the differences in like the physical anatomy of these trees that what you're looking at is in fact a west coast conifer and not a chestnut but those images are rampantly peppered throughout the literature. I know the there are no more that I've been able to find on the American Chestnut Foundation website. They've done a good job of cleaning that up. Good. Um, but hmm. yeah, there are some amazing historic photos of actual chestnuts. Um, you just have to dig for them a little bit harder some of the time. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the, um, the blight. The blight. Yeah. Yes. So as many... Uh, interesting do i want to say bad things uh do let's talk in terms of good and bad grand island yeah <laughs> grand island uh, so there's Long good island. fungus and bad fungus <laughs> <That's right>. and <laughs> there's no morality in nature so there's this bad insect <laughs> all right so let's talk about the blight <laughs> right so in the very early 20th century I think maybe it was 1904. Very good. Okay. Yeah, I have it in my notes here. Okay, excellent. <laughs> yeah, and I want to give a shout out to, there's this very, very nice little book that was published recently um, that was the only book on chestnut that I could get fast enough to read before this episode this week okay. because it is available as an ebook, and all the other good looking books are not available as ebooks, <laughs> which is a bummer. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, yeah, I, I should have written down who it was written by, um, but it's the only ebook on American chestnut you can find. And it's, Please tell me that's the title of it. Uh, you're going to have to put it in the show notes. We can do something. that. Yeah. yeah, that'll be fine. No, it was, I mean, it's very basic. It's written at like, you know, definitely like a middle schooler could read it. Um, and so, you know, it's all very simplified, but it's a very nice summary. And I think, um, you know, it would be really good for pretty much all ages to introduce them to the subject if they want. A little bit more of a narrative version yeah. of what happened with the chestnut blight. Um, but yeah, 1904, um, I, as I understand it, it was a guy who worked at the, what was then the uh, zoological park in New York City. Um, the Bronx Zoo. The Bronx Zoo, yeah. yep. And uh, so he noticed that the chestnut trees were getting sick. Um, they were starting to get some discoloration on the trunk that started sprouting little orange things and the branches up above were dying and eventually this discoloration would spread all the way around the whole trunk and the tree would just die entirely. And so that concerned him. So he got in touch with someone who was working at, I think the New York Botanical Garden at the time, a plant pathologist. And uh, so they were able to figure out that it was a fungus that was attacking the trees, uh, eating through their cambium layer which is the portion of the inner bark between the tree's wood and its outer bark where growth happens. Yep. And basically dissolving that cambium layer with a chemical called oxalic acid, 
which is the stuff that makes certain vegetables taste tangy. Um, but in much larger quantities is very caustic. Um, and so with that oxalic acid, they break down and digest the plant tissue in the cambium, and they do that all the way around the trunk, and that causes the tree to be unable to send nutrients back and forth between the roots and the leaves, and then the tree dies. <laughs> so yeah. like a fungal girdling yes. of the tree. Yeah. And uh, the research that I did backs up everything you just said, and the one thing that I wasn't aware of was that apparently before 1904, but I guess it makes perfect sense, there were these blips in state pathology reports um, of botanical diseases of in the late 1800s pathologists noticing hey something's going on with chestnut trees but it wasn't until 1904 um, like you talked about at the zoo where someone said all right we need to take this and then in 1905 was when they demonstrated inoculating a healthy tree with mm -hmm. the fungal pathogen they think it came in on japanese chestnuts mm -hmm. i mean because you guys know the, the late 1800s that was like the botanical heyday um, people were just so into botany then and churches would have botanical walks on Sundays but there was a, a lot of importation of exotic species um, and back then we didn't know about uh, invasive species or you know what what could happen the long-term effects so we think it was brought in by upon a Japanese chestnut and I've had people in, in talking about chestnut trees saying you know what about Chinese and Japanese chestnuts? You know, they're immune to the disease or they're immune to the blight, so why aren't American chestnuts? And in preparation for this episode, I listened to two In Defense of Plants episodes, um, another podcast with our friend Matt. We've talked about him a lot, but we'll put those in the episode notes. And one of uh, the researchers that he brought on, I thought they, they couched it very well. They said, well, well, think about when European settlers came over to America. Um, all these diseases that they had resistance to, the Native Americans had never been exposed to. Wait, why is that? Because, like, the Native Americans are humans and the Europeans are humans, and how could one be immune and the other one not be immune? I don't get it's it. It's all about exposure, man. <laughs> that, oh. Co-evolution, right? Oh, my gosh. It, all, it actually makes a lot of sense yeah, It now. does make yeah. a lot of sense. <laughs> well, but didn't the Indians, didn't they come over from Europe, right? Oh, dear. <laughs> You've been watching too many YouTube videos. <laughs> hey, that's where I get all my information. <laughs> so they just, they hadn't co-evolved, just like the American chestnut tree had not co-evolved with this disease. And I think it's super important to point out, one thing that I didn't really realize, I guess I hadn't thought about it too much, but the Chinese and the, um, the Japanese chestnut, they're not immune to the disease. Right. They're resistant to it. So it's not like they don't get it. Uh, and one of the things the researchers talked about is trees don't have an immune system. Very often when they're facing a disease or a fungal pathogen like the blight, they form a callus um, growing over and basically compart compartmentalizing the disease. <laughs> now, have had you guys heard of tyloses? I hadn't heard mm -hmm. of these before. No, I, I haven't. About this. So they're balloon-like swellings or projections that fill the vessels so they can no longer conduct water. And that's how they basically block off the disease. They compartmentalize it. Depending on your species, they form in different parts of the vascular system. You were talking about the cambium. Mm -hmm. um, and they can also form in response to wounding. Like I know when I tap a maple tree, mm -hmm. that within a year or so, they, there's an area around that tap that's going to quote-unquote die. Um, and that's the tree forming a, forming a using tyloses, mm -hmm. basically to shut that off, mm. to block off the wound. Mm -hmm. So trees are fighting off disease all the time and if they have certain genetic resistance they can the the disease isn't going to go through the tree so quickly that the tree can't mount a defense right so the chinese and the japanese chestnut they can mount a defense and kind of block off the disease but with the american chestnut with no resistance the fungus was just so virulent that by 1940 so this was you know first documented given a scientific name uh, it's a <laughs> i wouldn't one. expect you to know this fungal one. scientific names they're always extra fun cryphonectria parasitica you That's practiced i did yeah <laughs> and there was a newer one well but i want to mention that nectria bit it's yeah. probably fairly closely related to some of our other fungal pathogens like beech bark disease which is a nectria or it might be a, a revised genus name by now yeah. um yeah, a lot of our... Also uh, attacks vascular system. Yeah, yeah, a lot of our tree 
fungal parasites, both native to this continent and introduced, are in that same group, okay. um, which tend to have nectria attached to the name somewhere. Okay. So that's really what allowed the disease to be so virulent. Is it just it didn't it had no resistance. Um, now what? That's the point I was talking about um, before, though. Is that so? This was identified 1905, given a scientific name. By 1940, just 35 years later, most of the mature American chestnuts were dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it just moved so quickly through the population. Through so by 1940, you wouldn't find a single chestnut on the streets of Buffalo, <laughs> <laughs> lining the streets, lining of the streets of Buffalo. I mean, That's I don't know right, if you'd find it still at Elms back then. Yeah, right. I was gonna say I don't know if you'd find it before then, but at, you would definitely not find it after. <laughs> definitely then. not after. <laughs> Okay, folks, so that's where we're going to end part one of our episode with Eric Danielson, the stewardship coordinator with the Western New York Land Conservancy. Stay tuned for part two, which should already be released by the time you're hearing this message. So thanks for listening, and we'll thank our sponsor, patrons, and reviewers at the end of part two. And by the way, there were no ticks to be seen. The Land Conservancy didn't have to cover any medical expenses. What a relief.